Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, August 15, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' confrontation of the religious leaders and his compassion for them. The message to all who will listen is Jesus invites all to come to him for salvation. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are here and that you desire more than anything for us to hear from your word and to hear from your spirit. And I pray that you would accomplish right here in this place everything that you desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to show you a series of pictures, could you pick which of the individuals you are seeing were good and which were evil? Not really. Seeing a photo of a person tells you little about them. You might, from facial clues, guess their emotional state of being, but you know even then the expression on their face could be something they're making up. They might be smiling on the outside while dying on the inside. We do that from time to time. Still, you make judgments of people based on incredibly brief encounters with them, the person's voice, their posture, their cleanliness, their dress. All these things shape how you feel about each person that you meet in the first moments of your acquaintance, even if you're just walking by them at Walmart. How long do you think it takes to make a lasting judgment of a person? Any guesses? How long does it take to make a lasting impression? What do you think? Five seconds. Very little. What else? A minute? Okay. Well, decent guesses and likely all wrong. On the uh, Association for Psychological Science website, in an article by Eric Wargo on first impressions, we find these words. You'll never get a second chance to make a great first impression. We've all heard the phrase, right? We've heard that an interviewer or a stranger at a party, or maybe a stranger person at church, will form an impression of you, your character, your personality, an impression that is nearly indelible within the first 60 seconds of meeting you. Or wait, is that 30 seconds, 20, two or three? Forget whatever figure you may have heard, Mr. Wargo continues, not to indemnate you if you happen to be preparing for a job or grad school interview or a blind date, but new research shows that you may need to have your act together in the blink of an eye. A series of experiments by Princeton psychologist Janie Willis and Alexander Todorov reveal that all it takes is a tenth of a second to form an impression of a stranger from their face, and that longer exposures do not significantly alter those impressions, although they might boost your confidence in your judgment. A tenth of a second. Do you understand? You and I decide if a person is good or evil, friendly or unfriendly, sane or insane, in less time than it takes for light to travel 300 million miles. You and I judge people, and our first impressions last in that amount of time. God help us. We are forming opinions of people based on things which matter not really that much. We don't know what's in their heart before we start eyeing them with suspicion or opening up our soul to them. 
We look at them and label them instantaneously. We run toward them or run away from them based upon what? A glance, a feeling? Samuel was a godly man who faithfully served God and God's people for decades. He was not immune to the influence of his eyes. When God sent him to Bethlehem to anoint a new ruler for Israel after Saul had rejected God's guidance, this prophet, Samuel, made the same mistake that you and I make. The story is found in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7. We're going to read those verses that reveal Samuel's faulty judgment and what God says about it. So pay attention to what transpires in verses 6 and 7. 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7 says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Who alone has the right to judge? God. Who alone can judge rightly? Again, it's God. He alone knows the inner lies and the inner truth. He alone knows the ins and outs of a person's heart. He alone knows what a person has done and what they have resisted. It's because we cannot know the things that God knows that Jesus commands us not to judge or you too will be judged in Matthew 7. You and I have no right to judge another person's salvation. I cannot judge a person's heart. Still, we do what we don't have a right to do, don't we? Let me say it again. God help us. Last week, we covered most of Matthew 23. We listened in as Jesus made right judgment after right judgment of the men who led Israel spiritually. Jesus, God's son, called out these play actors over and over. Here are the verses that we read last week or some of the verses we read last week. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And then in verses 15 to 16, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. Skipping down to verse 23, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jumping down to verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. And finally, verses 27 and 28, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. All those things we heard last week. All those accusations, they point at our own hearts at times. We are guilty, wicked, blind, hypocritical, at least once in a while. Sometimes we follow our flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. It is good and right to open our heart to God's judgment and let him convict us of sin, to allow him to show you and to show me anything that he finds offensive. David prayed in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
God is always going to answer that kind of prayer. Always. When we humble ourselves before God, submitting to his righteous rule, he sets us free from the sin which binds us and the wrongs which harm others, the offenses which damage our relationship with him. Is it not wise to seek the right judgment of the only one who can judge rightly? Is it not wise to allow God's perfect instruction to guide us away from sin? Is it not wise to give our hearts to the one who loves us and saves us and justifies us? Perhaps a few words from Paul will help us. To the church in Rome, he wrote the following. I'm reading Romans 3, 21 to 24. Listen to what God says to us through Paul. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, or this right standing with God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You have sinned, and I fall short of the glory of God. I can be justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that Jesus bought on the cross. You can be given by faith the righteousness of God if you put your trust in Jesus. This is the good news. We don't have to get our act together in order to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. We can come to God as we are and be forgiven and set free and made new. God, the perfect judge of all, accepts those who trust him for salvation because he's judged Jesus righteous and he gives us Christ's righteousness, makes us righteous. Jesus made that possible. Do you believe? Have you trusted God to give you Christ's righteousness? Are you, in fact, justified by grace? What you do with Jesus matters eternally. The men Jesus castigated over and over in Matthew chapter 23 refused to submit to Jesus. They hated him, wanted him dead, because he exposed their hearts and pointed out their fakery. They had fooled so many for so long, but Jesus was not duped. Last Sunday, we left the final 11 verses of Matthew 23 untouched. I just couldn't fit the last words Jesus spoke to the blind Pharisees and teaches the law into the time frame that you and I have tacitly agreed to. Hunger pangs wait for no preacher, and you have to beat the free Methodists to the dragon's breath. Mugu guy pan and fresh egg rolls won't keep forever, right? So after considering... The gravity of what Jesus says as his rebuke of the blind guides of Israel comes to a close, I decided with the prompting from my wife and the Holy Spirit to take the time today to cover what I lacked sufficient time to include last week. Though doing so makes this series on Matthew, which is already weeks longer than originally planned, even longer, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 39, which we did not get to last week, and I think it'll be worthwhile for us. So let's take today's passage in two chunks. We're going to start with verses 29 to 36. In the two paragraphs we're about to read, Jesus, God's son, the perfect judge who knows all things, wraps up his scathing review of the evil in the hearts of the men before him. So listen to these words of judgment, hear what he says, and recognize the wrath of God rightly applied to hard-hearted rebels who will not bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 23, 
29 to 36 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Now, we who are reading Matthew have known for quite some time that Jesus is going to die at the hands of these religious leaders. We first learned of their murderous intent way back in Matthew 12, months ago, where as a more of an aside in verse 14, Matthew wrote, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. In chapter 16, just a few chapters later, right after Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Matthew lets us know that Jesus has begun to reveal what's coming. Listen to what Matthew records in verse 21. Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. One chapter after that, in chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, Matthew gives us Jesus' actual words spoken out loud to his disciples. Here's what it says. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Death awaits Jesus. He will suffer many things under the supervision of the elders and chief priests, the teachers of the law, these people who are standing right before him. He's going to suffer and be killed. And the disciples hear that part and they grieve. You and I, having read the rest of the story, we don't miss that part where it says, and on the third day be raised to life. We don't miss that, but the 12 do. They hear the bad news that he's going to die and miss the best ever news that he's going to raise from the dead. And aren't we just like them sometimes? We frequently forget that Jesus is alive today, living amongst us by his spirit, giving us power. More often than we like, we live and act as if we cannot change any part of our terrible circumstances, that we have no one to turn to. We despair and grieve rather than pray and praise and give thanks despite our circumstances. Paul wrote these words to the church in Philippi while he was in chains in prison. Uh, he wrote these words to them, and I, I want you to hear what God has to say to you through them. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's written from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
The Lord is near, and because he's near, we can rejoice in him. We give him our anxiety, we pray, we give thanks, we make requests to the living king. We receive the peace of God, and his peace, which is unfathomable, guards our hearts and our minds, even when things don't change right away. God, help us to live in the joy and the peace that's ours in Christ Jesus. Back to the words of woe that Jesus has just pronounced back in Matthew 23. He is speaking straightforwardly to the very men whom he knows will succeed in doing him in. He knows these are the guys that are going to have him put to death. The men that he's calling hypocrites, the men that he's calling snakes and blind guides are the very ones who are going to arrest him and try him and condemn him and drag him off to the Roman governor's palace so that he can be crucified. Interestingly, these guys will recall Jesus' words about the third day better than the twelve did. They ask, after the fact, when Jesus is in the tomb, they ask for a guard to stand before the tomb so that the disciples can't come and steal the body. (laughs) Not that their precautions did any good. Jesus said he'd be raised to life, and ain't no battery of soldiers going to hold him down. They're just going to be a witness to what happens. Woohoo! Got to stay on task. We're talking about Matthew 23, not Matthew 26 and 27. We'll get there eventually, I promise. Jesus, knowing all that lies ahead, exposes the murderous hatred in the hearts of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and he even suggests that they've inherited this evil bent from their fathers. The men whose blood flows through these men's veins were prophet murderers. The men of Jesus' day know this about their ancestors. They're at least outwardly appalled at such behavior. They try to distance themselves from the actions of their great, great, great grandfathers. We wouldn't do such things, they say, as they pretty up the graves of the prophets whom their clansmen had murdered, and yet they're plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus mentions their questionable heritage and speaks forcefully. He just simply says in verse 32, go ahead and complete what they started. The men, upon hearing these words, had to know that Jesus knew what they were up to. They thought they were being sneaky and making plots that no one knew about. But he knew. They tried to keep it hush-hush, but you cannot hide something from the Son of God. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, what they would do, what would happen to him when he was delivered into their hands. He would suffer many things, he would die, and he would live again. And what would these men do after he was dead and then undead? They would continue to act spitefully toward the church. Their murderous hearts would find new targets. They would pursue and persecute those who dared to follow the risen Lord of all. From town to town, they would chase them. Some of them they would whip. Some of them they would threaten. Some of them they would run out of town on the rail. Well, they didn't have rails, but anyway. Some of them they would stone. I need to insert here. And some of them who were doing these things now came to believe later says in Acts that some of them came to salvation. So nobody's ever too far gone until they're gone, right? So keep praying for those people who persecute. If you read the book of Acts, it's all there. The religious leaders continue to hate. They continue to mistreat and murder Jesus' followers almost from day one of the church. 
Jesus predicts their wicked ways and pronounces judgment on them. They will, he says, be held accountable for all the blood of righteous men shed throughout the ages. Here's the truth. The unrighteous more often than not seek to destroy or end the lives of those whom God counts righteous. Jesus mentions Abel. That's way back in Genesis. Why was he murdered? Because his heart was right with God and his sacrifice was accepted while his brother Cain's was rejected because Cain's heart was not set on God. It wasn't about vegetables and meat. It wasn't about that. It was about the heart of that person. And God warned Cain before he killed his brother. He warned him that his anger was going to cause trouble, and it did. He took his brother out in the field and slew him because his brother was righteous and he wasn't. The unrighteous more often than not seek to destroy and end the lives of those whom God calls and counts as righteous. The story of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is an interesting one. Jesus brings it up here, but it's not found in our Bibles. Who Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is, is up for debate. That his murder was a matter of common knowledge in the day that Jesus spoke about it, we have no doubt. People knew who he was talking about. And his blood, along with the blood of every other murdered God follower, was to be upon the heads of those that Jesus was confronting. The guilt of their ancestors was great. Their guilt was going to be even greater. They are about to execute the Son of God and persecute the church called by his name. The question we must ask as we consider their actions is this. Do we hate those who challenge us, who disagree with us, who call us out on our stuff? Is murder in our hearts? Jesus' words need to be remembered often as we examine our hearts. Matthew 5, and 23 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Our attitudes matter. How we think of people matters. God, help us. We need to have change in our hearts. Teach us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We've got three more verses we've got to cover. We'll read them now. Jesus is speaking. Listen, this is Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The love Jesus displays in this moment, it's beyond me. He reveals his deep compassion for the men that he's been rebuking. He wants them to come to faith in him. He wants them to enter the kingdom of God. He wants them to know him. These same men will in a short while successfully carry out their plans to see him dead, and Jesus has compassion. This is the heart of God for every sinner. 
He longs to gather each and every rebel on planet Earth into his family and wants each person to bend their knee to Jesus and to receive salvation. But you are not willing. Those words tell the story of most of the people that you and I know. Most are unwilling to submit to God. Most reject his loving sacrifice for sin. Most say no to Jesus. In Revelation, it says that the hearts of most will grow cold. John, one of the 12, the writer of the gospel named after him, said this of Jesus and each person's need to put their faith in him. John makes it clear that belief is the only way and explains why so few will obey. So listen with your heart to John three sixteen to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The religious men of Jesus' day loved darkness rather than light. They refused to come into the light for fear that it would expose their deeds. Most of them died in sin, rejecting the God that they claimed to be defenders of. But a few believed. But most missed their Savior because he confronted their wickedness and they were unwilling to submit. Have you believed? Is your faith in Jesus? Whoever believes is not condemned. That's what John wrote. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed on the name of God's one and only Son. This is as true today as it was when John wrote those words. Please receive the eternal life that God promises to all whose faith is in his Son. It's the only way. Faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's the only response to this message that I can urge upon you as we close today. In the next minute or two, consider what God has said to you, the offer of salvation that he's given to you. There is no other way to be freed from the guilt and the power of sin. It is faith in Jesus or it's nothing. So talk to God and let him speak to you. Accept his loving invitation to eternal life. And if you have received that by faith in Jesus, pray for the lost. Pray that God would send out workers into his harvest field because it's ripe. Let's take just a few moments and pray. Jesus, who have we on earth or in heaven but you? You have the words of eternal life. It's your righteousness that we need and we can only have it by faith in you. And so I pray, God, that you would draw people to you through your spirit's work in their hearts. 
that we might be made new and set free from our old rebellious ways and our sinful ways that we would come out of darkness into light so that people can see that you've done your work in us. God, for those who love darkness more than light, I pray for, pray for them that they would give up their ways, that they would turn away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. God, do your work in their hearts. Soften their hearts. And send your church out to find them. Help us to leave the 99 to find the one. God, help us to see what you're doing and join you in it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close today, let me read a couple of verses from 1 John. These words from verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 are addressed to the church. That's you and me if we're believers in Christ. So listen. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So this is my prayer and blessing for you this week. May you enjoy fellowship with Jesus and with one another as you walk in the light. May you be freed from not only the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin, so that you might walk in joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.